Good morning, everyone. It's nice to be where the sun shines. I have to live in Langley, and it's not been a very nice spring. The flowers are all out, but you can't enjoy the sunshine. So we, my wife and I grew up in Saskatoon, and um, we have prairie roots, and we were at a lake at a camp this last weekend, and she and I took a canoe, and we canoed around the whole lake and just enjoyed being in God's creation. We had a really relaxing time. It's been a bit stressful uh, in our ministry. And so just to get away and uh, away from home, we have a couple of boys at home still. And uh, so we abandoned them, hoped that they had food to eat, you know, and hoped that the house is still there when we get home. But uh, God is good. I'm going to be speaking to you today from chapter 9 of Luke. I'm actually going to speak through the entire chapter, uh, maybe in a little different way than you expect. Do you want to live a life marked with the power and the authority of God? I think most Christians would want that. Most Christians would want to have a life where God's power is demonstrated. Going through life, never having God working through you would be mm, fairly discouraging. Almost like, what's the point of being a Christian if God isn't at work through you? Well, in Luke chapter 9, uh, in this, this chapter, I think there's a key for us as God's people to understanding how God works and how we can have his blessing and his authority in our life. So I want to start, I'm, this is a I, I have to say, I don't want to be irreverent with the scripture, but I like to have fun. So I hope, I hope you can enjoy a little bit, maybe looking at these stories a little bit differently than maybe you have before. So I, I, I want to start just at the very beginning of the chapter. It says that God, 12, uh, God called the twelve, that's his disciples together, and he gave them power and authority over all the demons to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Um... So right off the bat, Jesus has an assignment for his 12 disciples. And it says here that he gave them power and authority to carry it out. When I look at this passage, I notice that he did not do certain things. Uh, first of all, he did not come to his disciples and say, gather around, we're going to have a little um, planning meeting. Uh, he didn't say, we're going to be trying to reach the surrounding villages. What, Peter, what do you think we should do? John, got any ideas? Well, John says, well, maybe, maybe we could rent a camel. We could put a sign on the camel saying, you know, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And maybe Thomas says, hey, we could hand out water bottles and could have the name of our church on the water bottles. And if you want to, you know, know Jesus, call the num this number. And, and then he didn't take a whiteboard and start writing down all of the answers of his disciples. Good idea. You know, no, no idea is bad. Let's just brainstorm here. How do we reach the surrounding villages? Any idea? And then he, and let's put it in the whiteboard here, and then we can group these ideas into large, you know, categories. We, hey, maybe we can find a scripture verse to put it and make, make a motto. Maybe we can get a logo. We can put it on the bulletin. We can have our theme. We have our strategy. Okay, God bless our plans for reaching the world. He, he actually, he did not ask for their opinion. He didn't want their advice. He didn't look for their great, wonderful, amazing ideas and big, audacious visions that they might have. He gave them a power and authority to do what he asked them to do. 
Regardless of what they thought, that wasn't important. Their opinions didn't matter. You see, he's the Lord. He determines what his people do. He's not about blessing our goals and our visions and our plans. He's about blessing our obedience to his plans. So at verse 10, it says on their return, they came back and they were so excited. They couldn't believe what had happened. Uh, they, uh, people were healed. Uh, people were set free from the demonic. Uh, uh, he, they, they were curing diseases. And he, they, they, they kind of had fun. You know, They had the power of God working through them. They'd never experienced that before. But as they're debriefing with Jesus, all of a sudden the crowd starts to gather around them. And I think the disciples got a little annoyed. Jesus, like, we're trying to have a conversation here, and we have like 5,000 people are gathered around us right now. So I think they're kind of off to the side and uh, listening, and now Jesus is teaching all of the 5,000 people on the hillside, and they're saying, you know, it's getting a little late. John, are you getting hungry? Yeah, I'm famished. I haven't eaten since breakfast. Andrew, got any food? I don't have any food. I went, I looked through the crowd. I found this kid. He's got a couple of loaves of bread and a few fishies. It's not enough for us. What are we going to do? I don't know. We could order pizza. Maybe we could um, find some cafes or bistros around. Why don't we send the people, send the people away because it's late and they're hungry, we're hungry. And so they came up with a new ministry plan. Sending people home. Let's just send people away. So they came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, and maybe you didn't notice, but there's quite a few people here. And uh, it's dinner time. Uh, we, we thought about it. We came to consensus. We voted as the disciples. We've come up with a plan. Let's send people away. And Jesus says, what? Thank you guys for all of your hard thinking. I appreciate that you have consensus, that you've come up with a plan. Let's just work your plan. We'll divide them into smaller groups, send them out so they don't overwhelm the, the towns, and uh, we'll be done for today. We'll wrap it up. You know, give me another 10 minutes. Well, he didn't say that. He said, what are you talking about send them home? He says, feed them. And they're going, <laughs> Maybe you didn't understand. We only have two fish and, you know, a couple of loaves of bread. And he says, sit down. And let me show you what I have in mind to do. Jesus took the loaves of bread and the fishes and he multiplied them so that it fed more than 5,000 people. And they had how many baskets left over? One basket for each disciple to remember how different his ways are than our ways. So uh, on this hand, the disciples' plan was to send people home. This plan was God's to feed the people not only spiritually but physically. So how different was one plan from the other? How different? What was that? Very, Very like, like the opposite? One says go away and the other one says stay. So it's like night and day. I mean, the disciples' thinking was opposite to Jesus' thinking. So... Uh, let's look at the next story in, in the passage. So if we come down to verse 28. Um, 
Jesus takes his three disciples, his favorite disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go up what we call the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, I've seen this mountain. I had a little tour in, um, in Israel one time, and it's not a big mountain, but it's a, it's a bit of a hike. Uh, and it's, there's no trees on it. It's just like a big hill in the middle of the plain. And so Jesus goes up on this mountain with his disciples. And what does he say? Uh, he goes up to pray. But what do the disciples do? So it seems to me several times in the Scripture passage when Jesus calls his disciples to pray, what do they end up doing? Falling asleep. So they're sleeping and Jesus is being transformed. It's like uh, the power of God comes upon Jesus himself. The glory of God is shining around him. He's glowing in the dark. He's like transformed into some uh, heavenly being. And then all of a sudden, poof, we have Elijah standing there. And there's and Moses standing there. And what are the disciples doing? They're sleeping. They're missing the whole thing. Like This is probably one of the most exciting moments in the New Testament. You could have, if I want to pick a you know, resurrection, I would like to stand outside the tomb. But I would love that we have been there when Moses and Elijah came to speak with Jesus to encourage him. So, so they wake up, Peter wakes up, and he looks around and he's, he's like so excited. He, he can't even talk. His brain is not engaged and his mouth is open and speaking. And he says, Jesus, I'm going to uh, quote, uh, uh, paraphrase a bit here. He says, Jesus, I've got a plan. We need to have a Christian camp up here. We need to have a tabernacle for Moses, and he can have seminars on how to part the Red Seas of our life. We could have another uh, tabernacle for, for Elijah. He could teach us how to call fire down on our enemies and burn them up. And we could have one for you, Jesus, and you could teach about the kingdom of God. Then all of a sudden, God himself interrupts Peter. It's like, Peter! I don't know. How would you like God to interrupt you? Like, he says, This is my son, my chosen one, in verse 35. Listen to him. In other words, God says to Peter, Peter, we've got Moses and Elijah and, and the Son of God here. Why are you talking? You should be hearing my son speak. We don't need a camp on the top of a mountain, we've got a plan already in place to send the Son of God to the cross to redeem the lost world. What do you mean? So how different was Peter's plan to God's plan? Pretty close? Not even close. Like it's, the op it's night and day. G Peter wanted to stay up on the mountain and, and God had a plan to send his son down to the cross. Well, strike two. So far, the disciples' plans are opposite to what God has in mind to do. Well, it doesn't stop there. So while these disciples are having a, an, an interesting time up in the mountain, the, the rest of the disciples, the ones who didn't make the cut to go up the mountain, they're down below, and they've encountered, they're, they're healing people, it says. I think they had a bunch of fun at the beginning of the chapter because they had the power and authority of God to heal the sick and, and, and restore sight to the blind, heal the lame, cast out demons, and what, they're just waiting down in the village, and I think they're having, you know, having some fun, but they come across this teenage kid who they can't handle. He's got some, possessed by some really strong demon. And so, 
um, I think probably they were talking amongst each other and said, this, this, uh, this is kind of hard. <laughs> like, we keep trying to cast this demon out, and it's not working. Maybe this kid doesn't want to be healed. That's it. He just doesn't want to be healed. Or, or, or maybe this demon is just too strong for us, or um, whatever reason. Then Jesus shows up, and the father of this son comes to Jesus and says, Teacher, in verse 38, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. Behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that it foams at the mouth and it, sh- it shatters him and will hardly leave him. I, I begged your disciples to cast it out and they could not. Hmm. Basically, this man is saying, you're my last hope. I've tried the healers. I've tried the medicines. I've tried the herbal remedies. I've tried the rabbis. I've tried the religious leaders. No one can help. Can you do anything? And what does Jesus say? I don't know who he's looking at when he says this in verse 41. Not sure if he's looking at the disciples or just the crowd. But he says, oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And with a word, it says, while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground, convulsed him, but Jesus rebuked the spirit, healed the boy, gave him back to his father, and everyone was astonished at the majesty, the power of God. So the disciples could not. They couldn't do anything. They were powerless. Jesus came, and the boy was healed in an instant. First of all, Jesus hadn't commanded them to be down there messing around with the people. They weren't doing it at his command or his instruction. They were doing it on their own. Secondly, in in Matthew chapter 17, the disciples actually, the same story occurs in Matthew, and they ask him, what's the deal? Why couldn't we cast this demon out? And Jesus says, well, truth be told, this is a tough demon. The only way you can cast this demon out is through prayer and fasting. So what do you think Jesus had been doing? Probably praying and fasting. And what the disciples, they weren't in tune with God. They didn't have the power of God. They they weren't communing with the Father. And so they tried to do God's work on their own power, and they failed. They They couldn't accomplish kingdom work in man's ways. Jesus shows up, demonstrates how, how you handle a demon like this through prayer and fasting, and they, they, they're like, wow. So how many strikes is this so far? We've got the, the bread and the, the fishes. We've got the, uh, the, uh, the demon. We have the uh, transfiguration. Well, it doesn't stop there. Verse 46. Maybe this is why they were so distracted. Verse 46 says that they, an argument arose. An argument arose among, among them who was going to be the greatest so, Peter, how many, uh, how, many, how many people did you heal back in that town? Well, I don't know, probably about 10, 12. I healed like 23. How about, I, I'm, I'm more special. Jesus likes me best. I'm going to be on his right hand. And, and they're arguing. And what does Jesus say? If you want to be great, you have to be what? The least. You want to be important? And get recognized and sit at the foot of the table and let someone else bring you to the head of the table. This is not something that you uh, earn the kingdom of God by by lording it over others. If you want to be great, be the servant of all. So their opinion demonstrated that their philosophy was completely opposite to what Jesus' idea is of, of what greatness is. He says, 
bring a child. Whoever receives this child in my name, in verse 48, receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he is, who, who is least among you is the one who is greatest of all. I think the disciples by now are scratching their head. They're saying, can't we get anything right? I mean, every time we try to do anything, we mess up. Well, it, it actually gets more serious than that. Verse 51 is another story. And this one's actually fairly scary. Very worrisome. So they, they come to a Samaritan village. And... Um, Jesus, it says in verse 51, has set his face to go to Jerusalem. So he sent his disciples ahead of him and to check out the village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. They're going to spend a night. So we all know, historically, the Samaritans and the Jews don't get along. They're enemies. They, they, they uh, mock one another. They don't talk to one another. They don't hang out with one another. And Jesus is telling them to go into a Samaritan village. The disciples know, historically, that's a bad idea. Culturally and socially, that's a no-no. I think um, James and John were sent into this village. It says in verse 54. And I think as they're going, they're going, this is a bad idea. We shouldn't be in this village at all. This is, this is we're like everyone's looking at them as they're walking down the road. They're all staring like, what are you guys doing in our town? Why are you here? You're supposed to be going around our town like every other Jew does. And so they knock on the first door and they say, hey, we've got a, you know, a dozen people, a dozen and one, 13 people. We need a place to stay tonight. And they're going, get off my property. Why are you even here? They go to another one. And before they even get a chance to say anything, they're just kicking dirt at them and saying, you Jews, get out of here. What are you doing in our village? And, and James is saying, John, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. Why are we, I'm so, this is, I'm feeling threatened. I don't want to be here. And they can't find anyone who will even talk to them now. The word has spread that a couple of Jews are around looking for a place to stay for the night. No one's interested. So they come back to Jesus and they say, Jesus, we have a plan. Hear us out now. Um, I know this is a little bit unorthodox, but... You know, in business, you have what we call seed money. You got money, you, you have to buy inventory, you have to rent a place, you got to spend money first before you can earn money back. You have to kind of give a little bit before you can get the, the, the like you got to buy the seeds, plant them, till, put effort in. He says, in this situation, I know it sounds a little unorthodox, Jesus, but, um, you know, if we, if we call fire down on this village and burn them up, then everyone will welcome us into their village. We'll just say, hey, would you want us to come to your village? Because if, if you don't, then that's going to... See the smoke rising in the distance? Yeah, they said no. So uh, how would you like us to come to your village? Oh yeah, come. You know, we could probably reach 30 villages by sacrificing this one. It, I know it sounds a little harsh, but hey, it works. The words are... James and John said to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to t tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Seriously? I mean, it would make a point. People would understand the authority that Jesus had. But it says in verse 56, 
or 55, he turned and he rebuked them. And they went on to another village. If you read further in the scriptures in Acts chapter 8, you understand why there was no fire called down on this village. In Acts chapter 8, there was a, a place and time where the Holy Spirit had come. At Pentecost, it happened. And, and now there's rumors that Philip had been evangelizing in Samaria and the villages of the Samaritans. And there's rumors that the Holy Spirit had come to Samaritan villages. And so they sent two people out. Uh, I think Peter and John were sent out to verify whether or not the Holy Spirit was actually indeed in Samaria. And they, I, I'm, I'm just going to say that my guess is they, maybe they went back to this very same village. Maybe John came and saw not enemies, but brothers and sisters in Christ. Because God had come down. The Spirit had filled the people with His presence. And now... They weren't enemies, they were brothers. And John could have looked at these people and said, God, maybe he fell to his knees. Maybe he was repentant and said, God, thank you for not calling fire down on these people and burning them up. Because now I can see your plan was so much better than mine. What does it say in Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9? It says, your ways are not my ways, says the Lord. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. As high as the heavens are from the earth, that's how distant your best thinking is from mine. You can't even begin to imagine what I want to do. That's why I'm God, Jesus says, or God says, essentially he's saying, stop trying to come up with a plan for me. Because it's not going to work. Your best thinking falls far short. I mean, there's some very bright people in this room. But I can just tell you right now, you cannot think God's thoughts. You cannot come up with a plan big enough and creative enough for God. He has to reveal His plans to His people. When, when the floods were about to come, He didn't say, Hey Noah, I'm going to be flooding the earth. Everyone's going to get wiped out. I kind of like you guys. I like your family. What do you think we should do? Got any ideas? When he came to Joshua and, and, and the, the city of Jericho, Joshua, you're a commander, you're a military guy, you've got to take this city. It's, stop, it's the very first, first place we've got, we got to deal with before we get into the promised land. What do you think we should do, Joshua? You got any ideas? Moses, I I'm really feel bad that all of my people are slaves in Egypt. I've got this, this place over in the promised land waiting, but you know, how do I get them there? You know, I'm a little lost here. Got any ideas? Hey, well, we can kill an Egyptian slave ma taskmaster. That'll, that'll get things going. So how, how, how well did Moses' plan work out? Well, it, he had to leave the country, and there's a death sentence on his head. He tried to work a plan. Did you notice anything in the, the, these stories? Did you notice that every time, whether, when they had 5,000 people that were hungry, when they had a boy that had uh, a demon in him, um, when they were up on the mountain, um, each time, did you notice that not once did the disciples ask Jesus what he thought they should do? They always first came to him with a plan. We've got to send the people home. We've got to build some tabernacles. We, we, tried, we tried to heal this kid. It wouldn't work. He's no good. You know, he's beyond help. Uh, every, let's cast fire down and burn people up. 
they always came to Jesus with a plan in mind. And not once did they say, Jesus, we've got a tough situation here. What do you think we should do? Jesus, we've got a bunch of hungry people. Well, what do you have in mind to do? This is exciting. Jesus, uh, what's going on? This transfiguration. What's, what's, what's going on? You know, let's just let's, let's wait before you. And what I find in so many churches is that we come up with our plans, we present it to God, and we ask Him to bless our plans. He's just shaking His head saying, what's this? That, that's, that's, that's your plan? That's not going to work. What He's looking for is God's people will, will come before Him and, and, and get down on their knees and have a time of prayer and fasting and seek Him. Do you know what it says that you cannot find the Lord until you seek Him with all of your heart? It says, you, you will find me, and you will search for me. You will come and pray to me, and I will answer. But you will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Let me, let me just ask, do you know how to seek God with all of your heart? Because most of the time it's just a quick prayer. Someone pray, someone offer prayer. God, thank you for this meeting we're going to have tonight, and, and uh, guide us as we plan. Amen. Okay, so what do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? What do you think we should do? Anyone got any better ideas? Let's write them on the whiteboard and we'll start to come up with a plan. And then, okay, at the end of the meeting, God, thank you for our meeting tonight and um, bless our plans as we go. Do you think that's actually honoring to God? Do you think that's worthy of Him? Bless our plans, God? I'm just saying, this, this chapter, time and time, and what the disciples offered wasn't unreasonable. I mean, it's practical. Someone once told me, my dad was a long-term pastor, and someone once came to him and said, I'm just the doubting Thomas of the church. I'm the practical guy. I'm the pragmatic guy. And dad looked at him and said, was that Thomas before or after he met the risen Lord? Because after he met the risen Lord, he never doubted again. So what this is saying, like every time that Jesus comes up with something, his plan is actually completely opposite to what the disciples offer. What does that say about our planning? It says we can't even think God's thoughts. He has to reveal to us what is on His heart. Do you want to know what His plan is for a pastor? Well, ask Him. Do you want to know what His plan is for your church in the future? Get on your knees. Have you already had weeks of prayers and fasting, seeking the heart and mind of God? How are you going to know what God wants for your church if you don't seek Him first with, your, with all of your heart? I don't even know if I can explain how to do that. In one of the scriptures, the first commandment is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Do you know how to do that? Do you honestly, can you honestly tell me how to love God with all of your mind? Can you honestly tell me how to love God with all of your strength? Like, I have a hard time explaining that to some people. How are we going to seek Him with all of our heart? I just say that if we, if we don't take that seriously, those are commands. They're not suggestions. If you want to know what's on God's heart, you better spend time on your knees as a body. I just ask you, is the head of your church in place? Anyone? Who's the head of your church? Pastor? No. The chairman of the board? No. Jesus Christ is always the head of the body. The body has the head in place. What you're missing is a shepherd to guide and to teach and instruct and disciple and to care. But you have the head in place. The head knows what the body should do. 
But are we connected to the head? Are we seeking God Himself? Are we spending time on our knees with Him? Are we in corporate prayer together? Ephesians 3.20, Christ says, uh, Paul writes, Christ is able to do what? Exceedingly, abundantly, beyond what we can think or imagine. How important is it to know what Christ has in mind to do with this body? I just say don't make a move, don't make a decision unless you've heard from the, the head of this church. That's so incredibly important. So at the end of this chapter 9, there's, there's one little verse here that kind of sums it all up. Jesus is saying foxes have holes in verse 58, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head to another. This is the line here. Another person says, follow me. Just simply follow me. His body has to follow the head. If we're following anyone else, anyone else is in charge of this church, God isn't. If anyone else is, is putting their agenda, you're, you're following man's ways and not God's ways. Follow me, he says. There's a denomination, I, I, I led a conference in Australia not too long ago, and they actually were congratulating themselves for reaching all of the goals that they had set the year before. They were starting new churches. They were building new buildings. They established a retirement center, summer camps. And uh, they were patting themselves on the back for all they had achieved in the name of God. But a wise person stood up in their, con their, their, their convention meeting and said, as I look around, I see our community is worse. There is more deaths. There is more divorce. More kids are getting into drugs. There is more uh, anti-Christian sentiment. It's the, while the church pats themselves on the back for all that they've accomplished, the world is going to hell all around us. Have we truly done anything that was on the heart of God? We've reached all of our goals and completely lost touch with the world around us. How can we be happy? They actually realized at the moment that their, their country, their nation was worse now than when they started. They cried out to God in fear and trembling, knowing that they, they achieved all of their goals, yet they missed what God had in mind to, for them to do to impact their neighborhoods around them. They thought that they were successful but they were losing the battle. You want the power and authority of God on your life, then you need to listen to His commands for you. You need to find out what's on His heart to accomplish. Then you will have His power. He doesn't bless our plans. He blesses our obedience. If you want His authority, then go in His name doing what He's asking you to do as a body. So I'll just say, we are his servants, we are his vessels, we are his instruments, we are his ambassadors, and he never gave us the right to come up with our own plans for his kingdom. Our own plans, as good as they may be, will only build up our own kingdom. Would you bow with me as I close in prayer? Father God, we acknowledge even this morning that you are Lord. You are our God. We worship you. We bow down to you. We sing praises to you. Forgive us, Father, when we present to you our human plans to try and accomplish kingdom goals. Let us, Father, spend time 
before you in your presence on our knees as a, as a body, as a church family, as people who want to seek and serve you with all of our hearts. Show us, God, how that's supposed to happen. Father, let us not just go about our, our routines and daily business and then say a quick prayer to you, but let us actually seek you with all of our heart. You say you will be found if we seek you with all of our heart. So, Father, it's my prayer for this group. As they, they look to the future, it seems uncertain, but it's never uncertain when the head is in place. It's a matter of the body getting in touch with the heart of the Father, with the heart of their Lord, the one they cry out to. Father God, help this group as they seek a shepherd, give them wisdom, give them direction. And may it not look like what's in the book and what's in the manual. May it look like somebody you brought miraculously because they cried out to you and you answered their prayers. Father, as they look to establish themselves as a church, may it look like a miracle when things come together because they sought you, not denominational help, not their area director, not local pastors and how everyone else does it. May this be a testimony, Father, of your greatness and your majesty and your miraculous intervention. May other churches look and say, how did you do that? How did you ever get to this place? They said, we got on our knees. And we sought our Lord with all of our heart. And he answered us. And, and, and we don't know how it all came together because it wasn't from us. It was nothing we had came up with. It wasn't our plan. It was God intervening. Father, may that be their testimony in the years to come. That they, they, they got on their knees. They found you. They listened to you. And they obeyed you. And your power and authority transformed this people and this community. That's my prayer, Father. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.